Welcome to the second series of Shooting the Breeze, and today we have a very special guest, Lorraine Landon. Lorraine, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you very much, Paul. Happy to be on. Lorraine, before we actually get into the questions, I was thinking about it the other day while I was doing my research. I uh, realised it's been longer than I care to remember since I first ever spoke to you, which would be back in the early 90s when the Kings and the Flames first moved into the entertainment centre. Probably right. It, uh, I've been around for a while, Paul, but uh, one of the lucky ones to have been able to uh, work in the sport that you love and uh, I've had a great ride, great journey. You certainly have. And I suppose one of the things that would be really interesting to the listeners is how you got involved in basketball because you've been involved for a long time as a player and as an administrator and when you first got involved, basketball, I don't think, was really a mainstream sport as it is now. Well, you're absolutely correct. I am in the older age group, uh, Paul, so <laughs> you're right, I have been around for a while. But uh, I went to Catholic schools in uh, both primary and secondary. And in those days, there wasn't a lot of sport for girls. And in fact, in primary school, I did Irish dancing. I wasn't too bad at that either. But uh, then when I went to um, high school, I went to St. Patrick's in the city. And they didn't play very much sport at all. We we had a great place where we went every Tuesday to play sport, and that was down near the rocks where there's all these beautiful, um, you know, apartments and everything now. But uh, we used to have a great time. I love going to sport on a Tuesday. So I did have a great passion for sport, and I really only played a little bit of netball in that early period. And when I went to high school, as I say, we had sport and we played netball and we did tennis and a few other things. But the thing I loved most at high school was being in musicals. And I sort of fancied myself as a bit of a singer and an actor and all that sort of thing. And uh, so my energy went there. When I left school and started working, I was involved with the CYO, which is a you know Catholic youth organisation, and they started to do sport and introduce sport. And all the girls at the time wanted to play netball, so I said, okay, I'll play netball. And then the boys started to play basketball, and that was so much more fun. So I immediately sort of looked around Sydney, found uh, and got involved with the Western Sydney Association uh, in Marrickville, Dulwich Hill they were. We used to play at Canterbury Boys High and it just really went from there. Wow. I have to say I'm quite surprised at, at how the journey went for you, that it was really that difficult to actually get to the point where you started getting involved in basketball. But from well, the, there's another little oh, point I'll, yeah. I'll add there as well. We were playing and having a lot of fun, and I thought, oh, I'm not bad at this. Maybe I could be better. And so I found out who, you know, whether there was a Division One competition and, you know, state championships and all that. So I joined a team called Barbarians. And, in fact, we used to have little uh, black and white leopard skin uh, shorts that we wore and, and white satin <laughs> tops, which are sort of pretty um, hard to envisage in, in, in today's world, but that's what they were. And and uh, I said to one of the leaders of the, t- of the club, why don't we do more to, you know, promote basketball and get in the newspapers and all this sort of thing? And we actually had the meeting outside of... Sydney Boys High in the park. So by this stage, I'd actually got to be in the state team squad and we're having lunch. And I said, you know, 
this is so good, you know, why can't we get more people playing? And, you know, people know about it. And they said, Lorraine, if you think you can do it better, go right ahead. So that was my invitation to get involved, um, Paul. And I suppose I've never really been able to say no since. That's a really interesting story, and I've got to say that uniform you've just described is—I'll call it unique. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, that was the start of your journey in, into the development of basketball and women's basketball in Australia. How difficult did you find it in the early days to try and get the momentum happening to get people to, you know, embrace and acknowledge basketball and women's basketball specifically? Well, it really was basketball in general because uh, what was happening in the 60s in uh, or the late 60s in Sydney was that we had a the basketball that was being played. And as I said, I played for Barbarians. Then I played for a team that was sponsored by Arncliffe Scots Club at you know at Arncliffe. And then we started to have um, associations for. And that really was the start of the development of basketball because you could. it wasn't just a club with either a male team or a, a female team and no junior team. So Basketball New South Wales was really trying to develop junior teams and a platform for young boys and girls to start playing. So I was involved uh, with the, you know, as I say, with Arncliffe Scots, and there was a men's team that some of us were friends with, and that was called Paratels. We had both of those club teams go to Canterbury-Bankstown, and that's how the Bruins was formed out of the those two clubs. And then we started to work very hard in the early 70s, and we were able to develop a relationship with Bankstown Council where we were able to get some land at Condal Park, build a stadium in 1975. So in that five-year period, a lot happened in basketball in Sydney. We developed Dow's, uh, northern suburbs developed, Manly, Sutherland, Newcastle and Illawarra were already up and running and quite very successful, particularly across men and women. So it was it was a gradual thing, but it did happen. It was spiked by the fact that we were able to get associations that were looking after men and women, boys and girls. And then the next piece was actually getting a facility to play out of. I'm I'm surprised by the, the amount of progress that was made during that period because I mean I remember growing up at that time really there was rugby league and cricket and that was pretty much it. You didn't really hear much about any other sports in the media, on TV or anywhere else and they certainly weren't discussed at schools, certainly not at, at the schools that I went to. And I think we always got a boost when there was an Australian team overseas so the Olympics always helped us. So 76 Olympics and then the 80 Olympics with, you know, Moscow and 84, 88, that really helped us and also helped us start the two leagues. So there was interstate competition being played from about 1975 throughout, just on the eastern coast, and initially only men and and Victoria and New South Wales and, and also Newcastle. And then we had a women's competition start. And then the late Dr. Raskey, who was really the pioneer of making the NBL happen, commenced in 79 and the women started in 1981. So you can see in that period of about 10 years, we went from club basketball 
to district association basketball, to then having international competition, obviously, with our Olympic teams, um, but more importantly, getting better competition on a weekly basis by participating against interstate teams, as well as having, you know, New South Wales championships, Sydney championships, etc. So it, it was a time where there was lots happening, probably not seen by a lot of people, but there was certainly a lot of activity happening and it was growing. And, and as I said up front, um, the sport is so great. Like if you've played another sport that maybe doesn't involve everybody as basketball does, you don't realise how exhilarating basketball is because we can all score, we can all run, we can all play defence, it's a team sport. It's played by men and women and boys and girls. So it's such a family sport. And I think that's why in that period, in sort of the 70s and then early 80s, we were the right sport at the right time. Oh, definitely. And if I remember my history correctly, the Bankstown Bruins ended up becoming the Sydney Flames. Yes, that's correct. So uh, we started, we had our men's team, the Bankstown Bruins in 79 were one of the foundation clubs, as was um, YMCA, who then became City of Sydney astronauts. So both of those played in 79. And then when the women started in 81, uh, there was the Bankstown Bruins and also Sutherland Sharks played in that first year as well. Uh, they probably didn't last. I think they only were in the league because of costings. They they were only probably there for one or two seasons. Obviously, the Flames developed. And then the thing that I think was a, a real kickstarter for basketball in Sydney, certainly, is when the Kings and the Flames came together. I know that you had an involvement in that. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about how that all happened and that explosion of basketball that really happened in the early 90s? Yes, I think uh, what went before that was the the marriage, and I say the marriage of the uh, Bankstown Bruins and uh, City of Sydney into the Sydney Kings, and that happened in '88, and that allowed, I think, a, a relationship with both of those associations that they had been the two leading associations in Sydney, City of Sydney for the men and Bankstown for the women. So we now had those two teams together under the, you know, the leadership of Mike Robleski, the late Mike Robleski. And the women then were sort of a little lost. Um, the other states and the other teams in around the country were getting more, had more um, resources. They certainly were paying players a lot more than Bankstown was. And so it was pretty clear that Bankstown Bruins were struggling and were not competing terribly successfully in the league for about two years. So we looked at changing the name to Sydney and we did do that for one season. That really didn't make very much difference at all. So the NBL with the Sydney Kings was now up and running for two seasons and I always used to pick my times when I used to go beg Mike for a favour but um, <laughs> I got the right day and I said, Mike, you love the women, you love watching them play. Uh, we could do something fantastic with uh, a team you know, as part of our package, you know, we are a, a family sport. We promote to the families. We do a lot in the community. It's the right time and it's the right mix. And he said, sure, let's do it. So that's how the Flames were started. 
and they stayed there until they went to uh, Sydney Uni um, some what, 18 years ago. But uh, they had a lovely relationship together with uh, the Kings and the Flames. Our fans loved it. Members loved it. Um, people will still tell you now they used to love going to the entertainment centre and watching both the, the, the Flames play and then the Kings play. And it was good for the sport because it had role models, female role models being shown in the same way as the male ones were. As you know, we always used to make a point of trying to get down early to watch the Flames play because they were fantastic games to watch. Entertaining, yes. great basketball, fantastic competition. And look, I was always surprised that there were always good crowds for the Flames yes. games, but I was like, why aren't there more people here? Yeah. Well, again, it's that marketing, uh, Paul. You know, Sydney was still a little bit slow in, um, you know, taking the shackles away from the dominance of football, the, all of the codes. When we went to summer, I think that summer helped us, even though at the time uh, Sydney didn't vote for us, a, a change of season to summer. We were happy to stay in, in the winter, but it did help us. And I think we then, we had some great players in that period, the early 90s. I mean, Robin Maher, Michelle Timms, uh, my daughter, Michelle Landon. They were really, really, they were feisty. They didn't give up. And in a lot of ways, they were more successful. Well, they, they won the titles before the Sydney Kings did. I mean, Sydney Kings didn't uh, win any titles until the mid-2000s. But, you know, they won in 93, you know, two years after Mike uh, said yes to me. So Mike loved them, absolutely loved them. And he was the one that drove the uh, bodysuit. He said he wanted to sort of be different. And, and it was the right thing at that time. I remember the first season where the bodysuit showed up and it was like, wow, <laughs> that's, that's different. <laughs> yeah, it was different. But it was good. You know, sometimes you just need to explore different things to make people take notice. And I think the world does that now pretty much on a daily basis. Nothing stands still. So if you can't, as a new word is, pivot to create another opportunity, then, you know, you're going to go missing. So that's what we did in that period. And we also had sort of a few years prior to that, the 84 and the 88 Olympics, where they were the first two Olympics that uh, the women were at. So all of a sudden, you know, you were starting to get some, you know, traction that, oh, they, they are elite and they're, you know, they're so good. And, you know, we celebrated the WNBL's uh, 40th anniversary last year. And I love the fact that we are seeing much more of um, elite females in all different sports. But basketball's been doing it for 40 years. So it wasn't just a you know, a Johnny-come-lately one. No, definitely not. And you mentioned the 84 and 88 Olympics. You had uh, a role with the Opals in both of those campaigns as the team manager. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that first step into the international Olympic competition for the Opals, what was that like? Oh, look, it was fabulous. Um, the uh, team, Australia had sent a team in 76 to the qualifying tournament in Bulgaria. And uh, they weren't successful. We didn't really have much in the way of preparation. But in 83, um, Basketball Australia decided that we needed to be on that world stage. If we were really going to take women's basketball in this country to anything further, we needed to expose our, our players to the competition. Australia had played in previous world championships but hadn't really um, been that successful at all. 
And so the VA board decided that if we were going to try and qualify for 84, we needed to go and have some competition prior, and that had never happened. So I was asked to be the manager and the driver of that program in 83. We went to Cuba in March of 84. We qualified by virtue of the fact that Moscow had been a very different Olympics and the USA hadn't competed there. And so for 84, Russia wasn't, or the old USSR, wasn't going to compete. So we got the spot that Russia had actually um, claimed. And there were only six teams. So we were one of six in 84 and uh, played in LA. I can only tell you that it was just the most wonderful experience for me personally, but for those 12 girls that had that experience. uh, And they played really well. I'll tell you a funny story. We did have competition of six. You played everybody once. So we had five games. Four of those, because we were the rookie team, rookie country, was played at 9 a.m. in the morning. So you can imagine our coach was wanting to get everybody up at uh, 6 a.m., three three hours before. Yep. We'd go down to have something to eat. You'd They'd warm them up around the court. Then we'd get on, come back to the room. We'd have probably half an hour before then the bus was there to take us to the stadium. And I had two players, and I'll tell you who they are. Patty Micken and uh, Jenny Cheeseman weren't morning people. They hated <laughs> And so I was rooming with them in a bit of an apartment and um, they would get back as quickly as they could from the breakfast and doing the warm-up. They would jump back into bed with their basketball tracksuits on and wait till the very last second before they had to leave that door. And I'd be standing at the door yelling at them and not allowing the coach to come in to see them in bed. So that was something that it's still a folk story now with the uh, – with with those past players, but we won one game, which was the last game. So we finished fifth, but it was the beginning of the Opals program. Prior to that, there had been, as I say, World Cups and, you know, a national program, but it just didn't have a feel of this was being supported by Basketball Australia, and that was the turning point for it. And with 88, we went in there, probably we had eight teams, so we probably felt we were around about the fifth or sixth mark to make the semifinals, which we did, and to be one second away from playing in the gold medal game was incredible. Absolutely incredible. And it was pretty sad that we lost that. You know, we had a one-point lead with four seconds to play. So Yugoslavia scored on us. And we everybody blocked out except one person. Like the, it, all of our girls blocked everybody out. But the girl that actually was um, had shot the ball shot it and ran in and uh, made the layup. And so it was very, very sad. We had a second to go and and Michelle Timms threw a a full-length shot. But that was really sad because in that championship, we'd actually beaten Russia and no one had ever beaten Russia in in an Olympics prior to that. So we beat them 60 to 48. I still have the score sheet. It's framed somewhere in my house. And uh, But it was the turning point for what then the Opals were able to do. There's been some amazing moments in Opal's Olympic history overall. I think one of the, the really key ones, and we've heard this from some of the past players that we've interviewed, Shelley Gorman, Annie Lafleur, was the 2000 Olympics. And you had a lot to do with, with the 2000 Olympics here in Sydney for basketball. Can you take us through that a little bit? 
Well, I had a lot of fun uh, a couple of weeks ago when it was the 20th anniversary and uh, I set myself a bit of a task to do a blog uh, every day on my Facebook and I think it was pretty well received. I had fun doing it and I was able to get some great pictures from uh, a friend of mine that I'd worked with in the Sydney Olympics. So 93, we won the Olympics. 96, I was appointed as the competition manager. So I had a period of three years to help prepare. I love the journey. I probably love sometimes the journey more than the actual event, but um, it was fun. We were very well prepared as an Olympics, as a sporting group. And then the basketball, both men and women in Sydney, was the highest I'd seen. And I had been fortunate to be at a number of previous Olympics. The standard from both men and women was amazing. And during the actual, you know, women's competition, Australia and the USA both went into the final of the gold medal game, both undefeated. And I don't think that had ever happened before. We were on opposite sides of the draw because we had been a bronze medalist in 96. So we were expected to do well. But, you know, Lauren Jackson was a 19-year-old. She had played unbelievably well during the championship and competition, when she got to the gold medal game, she had a double-double and she had the best game for a 19-year-old I'd ever seen. And we were a little bit unfortunate in that game because we did end up losing by nearly 20 to get the silver medal. But it showed that we had these young players coming through that we were going to be a force in that next decade. And of course, that was the case. It was. I remember we interviewed both Annie and Shelley. They both, when they were recounting that game, they were both getting very emotional about it all these years later because it was such a, a huge event for them, for the sport and for the country and the Opals generally. Do you think that those results at the 2000 Olympics really helped to give basketball that push to the next level? It did, and it started for us, as I said, we won the, the bid for the Olympics in 93, but in 92, we actually won a bid for us 94, which was the Women's World Cup then, and that created an incredible wave of interest from people who had never seen. They, they You know, they, they supported netball, and Australian netball girls were absolutely world-class. But here was this basketball game with athletes who could jump. They were tall. They were aggressive. They played with such vigour and energy, but finesse, you know, and, and that's the difference between the men's and the women's game. The women's game now is, is and I watched a WNBA game the other night, and, uh, and it has gotten more athletic. But the difference between both is the finesse and the way that the women's teams play as a team. You know, they're much more team orientated. So what uh, the World Cup gave us in 94, we then went into Atlanta and won a bronze medal. Coming into Sydney, uh, and we then went to 98 in Wuppertal in Germany and, and won a bronze medal there in the World Championships. So all of a sudden, he was this Australian team starting to actually be seen on the world as being top four. So 94 at home here, we finished fourth. Uh, 96, we got a, a bronze medal. Then we got another bronze medal. And then we went into Sydney wanting that gold and felt that we were ready to at least have a go at it. We were, and we did a really good job. We got a couple of injuries. Um, Christy Harrower got injured and, and Michelle Timms wasn't um, fully fit. 
If they had have been, then I think we would have taken it to the Americans. But what we did then in 2001, 2002, we went to China, won a silver medal, and then went into Athens, again, seen as one of the top three teams. And we played the US in that gold medal game. And we came out at halftime. I remember Trish Fallon walking past me and I said, you've got this. And they went all the way to probably the last five minutes. And uh, one of the um, uh, the American guards made a three-pointer. They'd missed all game and made a three-pointer. That put the US ahead. And I think we lost by about eight. But that was the closest we ever got to the USA in a gold medal game. But it, it created that interest back here and it helped the WNBL as well because we now had this world superstar in Lauren Jackson and, and many other players, Rachel Spawn, Trish Fallon, uh, going with them as well. It's been a great journey for women's basketball overall. Obviously, one of the things we haven't touched on was that gold medal in the World Cup as well, which I think one of those things that also helped spark the interest in basketball. And now we've got the World Cup coming back again. Do you think this is really going to help give us that push yet again to yet another level? Absolutely, Paul. And and I think that, again, the timing is right. Timing was right for 94. Timing was right for us to have the Olympics in 2000. We now have women in this country being uh, showcased and uh, it's been wonderful for young girls to see I can be like that. I can play soccer or I can play cricket or I can play rugby league or I can still play basketball. And so we're hoping that we can get that momentum and really push the excitement and the energy and uh, everybody waiting for that 22nd of September in 2022 when we will throw up the first ball at Kudos Bank Arena. It's going to be a huge event. I can't wait for that. As you said, we've got our elite players being showcased overseas and and Ezzy was part of the storm. Yes, yes. And, and, you know, I, I feel that we've got a couple of other young girls that are sitting in the background right now and Sandy Brondello, the head coach, will give one or two of them a chance in um, in 22 to actually be that new Lauren Jackson. And there's only ever going to be one Lauren Jackson, but there will be, Ezzy will step up. Lizzie hopefully is still playing at the level she can play. But there will be a couple of guards that I'm sure will be the new Opal's uh, heroes, Opal's stars that we continue to produce. We've got great coaches here, Paul. Like our programs are great. Our system for, you know, Australian championships are wonderful. Selection is good. And we're always looking to ensure that somebody doesn't fall through the cracks. You know, most of the time, the structure of the program, the pathway, does pick up all that can, you know, have the potential to get to the top level. So I'm excited that we will see in 22 one or two new young players that maybe have been in our under-17 and our under-19 programs. Do you think the fact that more people are going over to playing the US colleges is actually helping us develop these players a little bit faster and bringing a different dynamic to the way the game's developing here in Australia? Look, it's a good point, Paul. And 20 years ago, I would have said definitely no. The women's college system was not as good as what we could provide here. And uh, so therefore, we found that You know, if you look at the past 20 years, some of the people we've talked about, none of them went to college in the US at all. What we're now seeing is a slightly different level of competition. They're more competitive in the college system across the board. There used to be two or three colleges 
that had all the money and best coaches and all the best kids went there and they were the ones then that went into the USA national program. But it's become very competitive for them because if you see somebody like Sue Bird, who's 38, she's been on the leading guard for the USA for a long, long time. And so the competition is getting a little bit more edgier in the US uh, colleges. Uh, So therefore, the standard is better. And I think we as uh, have been able to take advantage of that. The US college system is not for everybody. If you are able to, you know, we have the Centre of Excellence here in Canberra. So if you're in with a good coach, uh, able to play in the WNBL, then that's that will get you to the top just as much as going to the U.S. college. It has got better for our players. Well, one of the things that I did want to talk about is obviously the Flames and the Kings are back together. The WNBL is relaunching for this COVID season that they'll be doing in a hub. What's your feeling for the future of the, the Flames and the WNBL and women's basketball, say, over the next few years? Well, it's a shame that we are playing a very small season. I understand it with COVID-19. We just needed to play, and so I think it's about a six-week program. I hope that we are able to then have some opportunities for our girls next year in leading into Japan so that they get prepared for that because they would have had a very short competition season. But I think that uh, that it'll be interesting to see how a six-week goes because they'll play, I think, 14 games in something like 30 days, 32 days. So it'll be the stronger ones and the fitter ones that will sort of be left standing. So it's hard to sort of go past the the Melbourne teams as being the sort of the favourites. But I think the Sydney Uni Flames, they're a bit of a dark horse. I think, Alison, I'm really interested in watching her play with our team. She's a very, very good player when she played for Perth. I liked how she played. And we've got some young kids coming out of Melbourne. They're all wanting to perform on the, the national stage to get to the international stage. So I think this season will be exciting, just not as long as we'd like it to be. I think the Flames will be very competitive, a bit of a dark horse. Second uh, season for Katrina. And I think she'll do really, really well. And then the Flames and the Australian team moving forward, we have um, that cake in 2022. It's going to be here. The World Cup's here. Teams always play better in front of their families. All athletes tell you that. And it's a great excitement. Being on that team will be really hard to make because it'll be very competitive. That's a really interesting insight. Probably the last thing I'd like to sort of wrap up on is just a, a quick chat about you know, now that we've got the Flames and the Kings together under the one ownership of TSE, how do you see that relationship now assisting basketball in Sydney and developing basketball in Sydney? Well, it's a shame, Paul, that it's happened this year in the sense of we didn't know, you know, COVID has hit everybody like a, you know, piece of wood from the left-hand side. So, definitely. Um, yeah, so that's that's a little bit of a challenge. So, as you know, we've had uh, double headers for the last three years with the Kings and Flames, and we had a lot of feedback from everybody. We do surveys with our members and our general public and fans, and they loved the fact that we had the Flames playing at the same time as the Sydney Kings, just on, on one occasion each season, but they worked very well, as I think you, you would know, and you would enjoy it as well. So. It was uh, the next step for the TSE in looking to sort of bring the Flames in. 
And I think that it will be very, very positive for women's basketball. It'll be positive for people being able to see the women. And whilst the plan wasn't to have a full season with double headers, we were planning to play some at Sydney Uni and some as double headers. We're hoping still, and this is in the back of my mind, that depending on what the NBL hub looks like or whether we do play any home and away games, that early in January, February, that there might be an opportunity where we can still showcase the women with the the men's team in the NBL. So that's something that we're hoping we may be able to do. If we can't, then we'll be looking forward to next season, uh, 21-22, where there would be at least a half of the flame season being played with the NBL. And what that does is that just like we did 20 years ago, it allows families that bring boys and girls and teenagers to the game to see the role models and they're seeing them at their very best and they're seeing them in an entertainment type opportunity and environment. And that is what then attracts people to come and watch women's sport. And you can see that's what's happened with the other sports as well. So leading into the World Cup, in uh, 2022, we'll be basing a lot of our promotion around the WNBL and the Sydney Flames here in Sydney in that period. Look, all I can do is say, can't wait. It's really exciting. Um, you're right. It's a shame that we can't showcase the WNBL and the Flames and the and the Kings playing together. But hopefully we will get to see some double headers at the beginning of next year. And if not, certainly at the end of next year when the seasons sort of get back into sync. Lorraine, Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure being able to speak to you about all these interesting topics. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been fun. 